Sometimes people ask why. Why do we do this? When we came up here, I didn't feel capable. Because I was scared. Why do we take our families away from places that are familiar and move to places that are far off? My wife was nine months pregnant and we did not know one person who lived in the city. Why do we come to where there's nothing so we can try and start something? The Lord really just, he broke my heart for this city before I stepped off the plane. Why do we stress and strain and struggle and sweat just to make life better for someone else? There's so many people that are broken, that are lost, and it's heartbreaking. Yes. Sometimes people ask why, and when they do, we tell them. There's places where the truth hasn't yet reached. We need to share the gospel and reach out our community. We tell them there's a God who loves them so much, he sent us. God spoke to us, broke our hearts for the city, and God's call trumps all. And we tell them there are people who love them so much. They give so that we can go. When people give uh, to missions, things happen. New believers are getting baptized. New churches are started. So when people ask why, that's what we tell them. We tell them it's the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Well, good morning, uh, Pitts Baptist Church family. Uh, we want to thank you for tuning in electronically on this Palm Sunday morning. Um, we do uh, indeed miss seeing you guys, as we've said uh, in the past, but especially meeting together uh, with everyone on Sunday morning uh, is sort of an empty feeling, uh, but we know one day soon we'll be back worshiping together in this sanctuary, and we really look forward uh, to being with you all once again. Uh, please continue to stay up to date through our church emails, uh, Facebook, and our website. And hopefully and prayerfully, you've been able to uh, have your Zoom meetings with your community groups. Uh, I know that uh, this morning, our students, our youth met uh, at 9.30. And uh, youth and parents, let me remind you that we will have a midweek service again at 6.30, so you will be receiving an invitation for that meeting, and please invite your friends to that meeting as well. I know that EPIC will be having their community group meeting today at 2 o'clock, and they also will have a midweek service at 6.30 on Wednesday, so please make sure that you're uh, staying up to date and receiving those invitations so that you can be uh, a part of those Zoom meetings. Um, the children's ministry schedule for today's Zoom meetings uh, is as follows. Uh, the first grade will meet at 1 p.m. The second and third grades will meet at 2 p.m. And the fourth and fifth grades will meet at 3 p.m. So if you're not receiving those invites for uh, any reason, please make sure that you contact Miss Amy or Miss Trudy so that you guys can be involved. Everybody is welcomed and encouraged to attend this Thursday at 6.45 via Facebook or by our website for our Monday Thursday service. 
Uh, there will be elements of preaching and singing and the reading of the word. Uh, and then one important, important element that Pastor Scott will lead us in is the Lord's Supper. And we would like for you to participate uh, with us in that in the comfort of your own home. Uh, so please go and make the, uh, those purchases so that you can have the bread and the juice and join us together uh, Thursday night at 645 for Monday Thursday and participate in the Lord's Supper with us then. As I mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday, and it's the season when we uh, collect for our Annie Armstrong offering, in which you just saw a video of, and I'm sure Pastor Scott will mention in his message. And our goal this year is $43,000. As always, uh, thank you so much for your generosity in giving to this offering, as well as supporting all the other ministry areas of our church, especially during these hard times. So please continue to take advantage of all our online giving opportunities. Uh, now, would you bow with me in a moment of prayer uh, as we begin our service together? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and what it represents in the Christian community. Lord, on this day, uh, years ago, you rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey and people were shouting praises to your name and, and, and waving palm branches to offer you praise and glory. And Lord, you knew that only a couple of days later, maybe some of those same people would be yelling, crucify him. Lord, thank you that you have extended the invitation to salvation to those who were your enemies. God, thank you that your word teaches us that while we were still yet enemies in rebellion against you, you came and you died for us so that we could have a relationship with you. God, I pray that our hearts are filled with joy today, not for any good work that we have done, but for the perfect work that Christ has done on the cross that secured our salvation. Lord God, I pray that we would worship him today in spirit and in truth. God, I pray that our worship is acceptable unto your sight. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone within the sound of my voice that's going out um, online, even as we speak, that knows you not and does not have the free pardon of sin, they've never fully trusted in Jesus for their salvation. God, I pray that today that they would be awakened by the Holy Spirit that they would confess their sins, that they would confess their need for the Lord Jesus to be the Lord of their life, and that they would receive by faith the gift of salvation. God, thank you so much again for allowing us this opportunity to be together via electronically to worship you. Nothing can come against your church, not even a virus, and we thank you for that. But Lord, we know that these are serious times and people are hurting all over this world. We pray, Father, that they would know that you are uh, their comfort, that you are their peace. 
God, grant them that during this time. Continue to grant our leaders, Father, wisdom to know how to lead us during this situation. But Lord, as your children, may we know your sovereignty in all of this, that you are still in control and that you always will be. God, thank you for that great assurance. Now, Lord, as we continue on in this service, I pray that the name of Jesus is high and lifted up and exalted because where that happens, you draw all people under yourself. Draw us into that fellowship, Father, and we thank you for it. And we pray this in the wonderful, matchless, mighty name of our Savior, Jesus, the Christ, our Messiah. Amen. Well, good morning. If you find your copy of God's Word and turn to Isaiah chapter 53, uh, we thought it would be very appropriate to read this prophetic passage uh, of what happened really with Jesus uh, in Holy Week and want to focus on some of those events uh, being the start of that. Uh, just to give you some background information on Isaiah 53, uh, this was written, uh, when you look at the date, around 730 years before these events actually took place. So to think of that, uh, when the prophet wrote this, we know that the scripture, just more evidence, that the scripture is a God thing. Uh, it's not a man thing. Yes, man penned the words, uh, but he was under the influence, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when he wrote these things. And as we read through this, just listen to the detail uh, of what Jesus went through uh, that week before he died on the cross for us. Follows I read, beginning in verse 1. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised, and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, no one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of many people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants he will enjoy a long life 
and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. Amen? For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels like you and like me. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word.
For almost a hundred years, in big cities with a hundred skyscrapers and tiny towns with one stoplight, on college campuses and Native American reservations, in churches too many to count, hundreds of thousands of men and women and boys and girls have made hundreds of thousands of life-changing decisions. Almost none of them knew her name. And yet, she was there. Annie Armstrong lived more than a hundred years ago. Only this one picture of her survives. History could have easily forgotten her. But Annie Armstrong is worth remembering. In the late 1800s, when most women had no voice, Annie was one of the first to speak up. First, for the urban poor in her hometown of Baltimore, and then for Southern Baptist missionaries around the world who desperately needed support. It was for these people that she helped start the National Women's Missionary Union. As its first executive leader, she gave women a platform in their local church and in ways that they'd never done before. These women helped focus Southern Baptist attention on the hurting and the lost and the missionaries trying to reach them. Annie wrote letters, 18,000 in just one year. And she traveled across America, encouraging missionaries and inspiring churches to pray, to give, and to act. She worked long hours, paid her own expenses, and refused to accept a salary. And in the darkest days of the Depression, right before she died, an offering was named after her. Today, the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering helps missionaries in the U.S. and Canada start new churches and meet needs through Compassion Ministries. Over the years, Southern Baptists have given more than $1 billion to that offering, and 100% of it, every penny, has gone straight to the mission field. There's still work left to do. The need is bigger than ever, and that's why even though she lived more than a century ago, and even though only one picture of her survives, Annie Armstrong's influence lives on. Because today in North America, just as it's been from the beginning, anywhere a missionary is sent, every time a new church is born, anytime someone gives to her offering so that a lost person might be found, Annie is there. Well, good morning, church family. We are coming to you on Palm Sunday. It's a very special time each year for the church uh, to celebrate together uh, the last uh, week of Jesus' earthly life before he was crucified. And of course, on Palm Sunday, we celebrate that event where Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds are waving palm branches and throwing their garments and the palm branches uh, at his feet. And there's a great celebration going on. Of course, we know that by the end of the week, the crowd that's in Jerusalem uh, will be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. But Palm Sunday, nonetheless, was a great celebration 
where Jesus was being presented to Jerusalem as her rightful king. I want to invite you to take a copy of the scripture out. As I've mentioned before, since everybody probably has a copy of the NIV translation in their homes, it's by far the, the top-selling Bible as far as translation. For that reason, I want to be reading this morning from the NIV, and we will be in Mark chapter 11, and we'll, we'll begin reading in verse 1. And I also want you to find Malachi chapter 3 and be ready to turn there uh, in just a moment as well. And then at the very end of the message, with the third point, we will be in Luke chapter 19. And so if you'd go ahead and mark all of those places, Malachi 3, uh, Mark chapter 11, and Luke chapter 19. Mark will be our main text, and so let's read together, again beginning at verse 1. It says, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at the doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven! Jesus entered, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we have together, even through a video format that we can gather together around your word. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work in each home and in each heart. Lord, open our eyes to see the wonderful things that you have for us in your word. Lord, we thank you so much for the suffering of the Lord Jesus because we know what that meant. He was giving his life for our redemption. Lord, may we never take lightly what he went through on our behalf as he prepared to bear our sin upon the cross. And we thank you today that because of his death and burial and resurrection that he has gone before us into heaven, preparing a place for us, and one day we will be with him in heaven. But Lord, until then, as your church, help us to be salt and light on this earth. 
and to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Again, Lord, use this time as we study your word together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin looking at these verses today in Mark chapter 11, we need to understand that we're entering into a, a very special segment of Mark's gospel. It's referred to as the Passion Narrative. Now some of you may be asking, what is the Passion Narrative? Well, the Passion Narrative refers to that last week of the earthly life of the Lord Jesus when He was rejected by the Jewish authorities and the people and He was crucified on the cross. He, he suffered and bled and died for us. And so the Passion Narrative records for us all of the events surrounding the suffering and the rejection of the Lord Jesus. One scholar has referred to Mark's gospel as a passion narrative with a lengthy introduction. Now that might be a bit of an exaggeration, but nonetheless he's making a point. In Mark's gospel, 38% of his entire gospel is dedicated to the passion narrative. We can even go further than that. 20% of Mark's gospel is dedicated to the last day of Jesus' earthly life. Now I want you to think about the significance of that for a moment. The gospel writers record for us the three years of the public life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. We see Jesus in Judea, in Jerusalem, in Galilee, in various places doing miracles and teaching and parables, many wonderful things that took place over the course of those three years. And yet Mark has zeroed in on the last day of Jesus' earthly life and he spends 20% of his gospel there. Now that ought to tell us something. That ought to tell us how significantly the gospel writers viewed the death of the Lord Jesus. You see folks, His death was no ordinary death. Apart from His death, you would still be in your sin and I would be in my sin. Jesus was bearing our sin on the cross and He was dying in our place. There is nothing else in the world more significant than that. Because without His death, and then of course His resurrection, you and I would have no hope. And so as we begin this Easter week, let's remember each day the suffering that He went through and that He died in our place and He was raised again to give us eternal life. Paul says in Romans 3.25 that Christ died as the propitiation for our sins. That word propitiation, I know that's a big word, but it's a biblical word, and it means that Christ took all of God's wrath against sin, and He died in my place, and He died in your place. No wonder the Apostle Paul said to the Galatians, that if he was going to glory, he had determined that he would not glory in anything except 
the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's these events of the Passion Week that we begin looking at today. Now, let's think about the setting for a moment. Everything in Mark chapter 11 all the way through chapter 16 takes place either in or near Jerusalem. Now, Galilee had been the place of much of Jesus' public ministry. And that was where Mark shows us the revelation of Jesus as the Son of Man and the Son of God. But Jerusalem is the place of opposition to Jesus and condemnation of Jesus. Now I want you to hold on to that thought until the end today because we're going to turn to Luke's gospel to see Jesus' reaction as he goes into the city, as he sees the city of Jerusalem, as he's riding in on the donkey, we're going to look at Jesus' reaction as he saw that sight. But again, I just want to restate that Jerusalem is the place of the rejection, the trial, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we get to the Passion narrative, in any of the Gospels. But when we get to the Passion narrative, we need to understand that time slows down and it takes on a whole new significance. Mark places the entry into Jerusalem on Sunday. He places the cursing of the fig tree and the clearing of the temple on Monday. The observation of the withered fig tree on Tuesday. The final conspiracy against Jesus and the anointing in Bethany on Wednesday. The preparation for the Passover on Thursday. The Passover meal and the arrest on Thursday evening. The trials and the crucifixion and the burial on Friday. And the resurrection on Sunday. There were also disputes in the temple and there was a great eschatological discourse. Eschatological means end-time discussion. There was that discourse that took place. The date of that is a little bit uncertain. Maybe it took place on Tuesday. Maybe it was Wednesday. Now, folks, keep in mind also that while Mark records this final visit of Jesus to Jerusalem, it was not his only visit. John, in his gospel, points out that every year of Jesus' public ministry, Jesus would go up to Jerusalem and celebrate with his disciples the Jewish festivals. Now, this whole section that we're in helps to answer the question as to why the Messiah had to die. I mentioned it earlier, he had to die in order to, to deal with our sin. Plus, we see that Jesus laid down his life as he told his disciples that he was going to do. Now, sure, man was involved, the Jewish leaders were involved, the Roman authorities were involved, the people were involved, but it's important to see that God is the one who is orchestrating this whole thing. God is sovereign 
And this is the very reason Jesus had come into the world. Remember what the angel told Mary and Joseph. You are to call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. The name Jesus referred to him being our Savior. Now again, folks, this is so important to understand. God's Son was not some helpless victim of circumstances that were beyond His control. God is in charge of every single aspect of the plan of redemption. It's just like one day coming in the future. God will be totally in control of how this world, how this present age comes to an end. God will be in control of that too. Now I mention all of this because sometimes people act like history is spinning out of control and that we're left on our own. That's not correct at all. History is His story. It's God's story. It always has been and always will be. Now I want you to take some notes this morning. Write down with me first of all the preparation. The preparation and we're going to look again at that from verses 1 to 6 of Mark chapter 11. Now I want to also state as we cover some of this material here, some of the background for many of you, it may seem like a lot of meaningless detail. But I want to assure you, it is not meaningless. This story is not simply about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey on a certain day. Everything being done here is being carefully orchestrated and it's being connected to what was said in the Old Testament about the Messiah when He would arrive. And so everything is so very important. In fact, I want to ask you to take your Bible and turn with me back to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, so hopefully it'll be easy to find. But in Malachi chapter 3, I want you to read... Uh, what the prophet Malachi says beginning in verse 1. He says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. This is the Lord speaking. And he says, Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty, but who can endure the day of His coming? Folks, that's happening here in Mark chapter 11. You read in Malachi about how the Lord will suddenly come to His temple and that's what we're being told in Mark chapter 11. Jesus has made clear that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come, the messenger. Malachi speaks of that. The messenger has come and fulfilled his role. John the Baptist has been the forerunner uh, carrying out that role and now the Lord Jesus is coming to his temple. But as Malachi points out, it's going to be a day 
of judgment. If we were to read on in Mark chapter 11, after we see Jesus suddenly going to his temple and looking around and then leaving, the next day we find him cursing the fig tree. And then you have him driving the money changers out of the temple grounds and cleansing the temple and you have the confrontations with the religious leaders and they reject Jesus. Jesus who is the Lord who has rightfully come to the temple, his temple. They reject Jesus though and Jesus rejects them and Jesus rejects their fruitless ways symbolized by cursing the fig tree that didn't have any fruit. Folks, there are such amazing things that are being done here that are all in fulfillment of prophecy. So please don't think that this is just any other day or that none of these details really matter. If we could fully understand what all was happening in this moment, I think chills, chills of excitement would be running up and down our spines. The Messiah is being presented to Jerusalem and He is coming suddenly to His temple. If only people could have seen how God is moving all of these pieces together that were written about in the Old Testament. You know, sometimes when I read the New Testament and I read the Gospels and I see how the people didn't see these things happening, I just want to grab them by their collars and say, don't you see what is going on here? But you know, then I have to stop and think. If I lived back then and was witnessing this in person or if you would have lived back then seeing all of this, would we have understood everything either? Probably not. Now, back to some of the details here for a moment. Jesus has been previously in Galilee. He's crossed back over the Jordan. He's dropped down uh, to Jericho. And then in Jericho, he's met Zacchaeus. And you remember what happened with Zacchaeus? He's been gloriously saved. And, and then Jesus has also healed blind Bartimaeus. And then from Jericho, again, after crossing the Jordan and, and getting on the uh, Judean side of the Jordan, he'd be in Jericho. Then Jesus has made that difficult journey, a 20-mile uphill walk from Jericho to Jerusalem. And many of the people in Jericho have joined in this journey with Jesus. Jesus and this crowd, they're heading up to Jerusalem. Why are they heading up to Jerusalem? Because it's time for the Passover feast. As he's nearing Jerusalem, he gets to Bethany. And then to Bethpage both of which are on the eastern side of Jerusalem, only about two miles away from Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is between Jerusalem and Bethany and Bethpage, while in those two towns, Jesus sends two disciples on ahead to make all of the arrangements for His triumphal entry. What are they to do? They are to fetch a donkey. Now the question is, 
Was this a prearranged event? It could have been. That's the way some have interpreted it. And there's nothing in the text that would forbid that interpretation. More likely, however, what Mark is wanting to communicate to us is the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. These two disciples find everything as Jesus said they would find it. Because Jesus is God the Son. He's sovereign. He knew where that donkey would be. Now obviously when the bystanders objected and, the, and then the two disciples said the Lord has need of it, they released the donkey. Now that says something about them. They had either become disciples or at least they had heard enough about Jesus and they were enamored with him like many of the people in the crowd were. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been so agreeable. Well, secondly, I want you to write down the presentation. The presentation beginning in verse 7 and going through verse 11. As we think about the scene that is about to take place with Jesus riding into the city, this is going to be very different from what would happen in Roman life with Roman generals. Roman generals had something they called a Roman triumph. A Roman triumph was an official welcoming parade that would be given to a Roman general when he'd led his armies out into battle and won a great victory. And he was bringing home rich trophies and maybe even important prisoners. The general would ride in a golden chariot. He would be surrounded on all sides by his officers. And in the parade, he would display his treasures that he had captured and his prisoners. They would even have Roman priests there who would be offering incense to their false gods. But folks, in biblical history, a donkey was an animal fit for a king to ride in Jesus' day. And it was symbolic of a king coming in peace. For instance, if you'll write down 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, and go back and read that later... When King David had his servants anoint Solomon king, David told the servants to place Solomon on his mule. All of this was also taking place to fulfill the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. That verse says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is the fulfillment of that. Now, this is the only time that Jesus allowed this type of presentation of himself. You'll recall earlier on in the Gospels when the people would be ready to take him by force and present him, what would Jesus say? He would say, no, do not say a word yet about what I've done 
because my time is not yet. Sometimes Jesus would disappear in the crowd when, when they would be trying to present him by force. And he would disappear. But now everything is being carefully orchestrated by the Lord himself. He's even riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. You see, there's some evidence to suggest that pilgrims were supposed to walk into Jerusalem on foot for the Passover. And so by riding a donkey, Jesus not only has Zechariah's prophecy in mind, but he is finally calling attention to his moves. It's now his time, and he wants the people to see that. Back in chapter 10, he had told his disciples that he was going up to Jerusalem and he would be crucified there. And so he's in charge of the timing throughout this, this whole process. By going through the motions of the triumphal entry with the crowd by his side, the Jewish authorities were going to have to take some kind of action. After all, it's Passover week and Jesus knows that they will not let such a display go unnoticed. It's estimated that during Passover week, the crowd in Jerusalem would swell to three times its normal size. And we know that this Passover is going to be different. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our new Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so there was a huge crowd and with Jesus riding in on a donkey given all the miracles that he's done and the people that he's healed, there would have been a huge commotion following. It would have been impossible for this event not to have caused quite a stir. Again, Jesus is in charge of all this. It's Sunday, remember, and on Friday... Jesus knows that as the Passover lambs are being killed, He will also be killed. He will be the new Passover lamb, the lamb of the new covenant. And so the timing of everything is important. The Passover lambs will be examined that whole week to make sure that they are without blemish. Jesus will also be examined. He will be examined by the religious authorities. He'll even be examined by the civil authorities. And Pilate, a civil authority, is finally going to say, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Christ was examined and he was faultless. You remember they had to produce false witnesses against him so that they could have something to charge him with. And so just like the lambs that will be examined and then killed, so it will also happen with Jesus. Now incidentally, if you were to look back to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is told that from the signing of the decree to rebuild Jerusalem after the exile to the time that the Messiah is cut off in the streets of the city, if you calculate the timing, 
here's what you would find. From the signing of the decree down to the cutting off of the Messiah shall be 483 years. Perhaps one of the most convincing attempts to calculate the math here would be that of Sir Robert Anderson. He was a respected British attorney, historian, and scientist. He went back to the time of the edict to rebuild Jerusalem. Nehemiah gives the date. He gives the date as the 1st of Nisan, 445. That would be March 14th, 445 B.C. He factored in the Hebrew calendar, which used 360 days instead of our 365. He also factored in leap years. He came up with 173,880 days. When you do that, you come out at April the 6th of 32 A.D., the approximate time that the triumphal entry is dated. Now folks, even if you argue that every detail of attempts like this might be slightly off, what we see is that the timing of all of this is absolutely amazing. But it shouldn't surprise us because who's in charge? God's in charge, and God is sovereign. Immediately we move into a time of celebration along with this presentation. It may be difficult for you and I to understand all the imagery, but the people of that day would have understood. And so what do they begin doing? They begin casting garments, their outer garments on the roadway before Jesus. Again, an Old Testament image comes to mind. When Jehu becomes king in 2 Kings chapter 9, we're told that garments were cast before him. It would be kind of like rolling out the red carpet for somebody today. It was a symbolic gesture. By laying their garments down, they were saying, we're laying ourselves at your feet. We welcome you to rule over us. We gladly offer ourselves in submission to you. Now, Matthew tells us that they were also casting palm branches in the pathway of Jesus. Palm branches were a sign of peace and deliverance. The palm had been a symbol on the coinage, their coinage since the time of the Maccabean revolt when the Jews had overthrown Antiochus IV as the Syrian ruler over them during that time between the Old and New Testaments. And so folks, there's no mistake of what's going on here. When you put together the picture of riding in on a donkey, the palm branches being spread, the garments being spread, Jesus is presenting himself to Jerusalem as her king. Everybody would have understood that clearly. Alfred Edersheim, the great Hebraist and scholar on the life of Jesus, gives an interesting tidbit of information that sort of helps us envision this scene. He believes that instead of one wave of pilgrims laying their palm branches before Jesus, that instead 
uh, Jesus and his disciples are repeatedly being met by pilgrims coming out of Jerusalem because the word about him entering Jerusalem has already begun to spread. And so here is one wave after another of pilgrims coming out to meet Jesus on his way into town. And with each new wave of pilgrims, there is jubilation and celebration that's going on. How wonderful it must have been to be in the crowd that day. But there's a lesson I want us to learn. And here's the lesson. God's ways are higher than our ways. You see, the Jews were fully expecting Jesus to march into Jerusalem and gloriously deliver them from the oppressive government of Rome. They were expecting that Jesus was about to set up Jerusalem as the capital city of the world and that Jesus would sit on David's throne and he would rule from David's throne there in Jerusalem. Even Jesus' own disciples had these notions. When Jesus told them that he was going there to die, you remember what Simon Peter said? Simon Peter said, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. And Jesus had to say, Simon, get behind me, Satan, for you don't have in mind the things of God, but you have in mind the things of man. And so they're expecting war to break out. But Jesus has come in his first advent to secure a greater kind of peace. Jesus is coming to reconcile men with God. And all of his actions show this. For a king to come riding in on a stallion would have meant it was time for battle. To ride on a donkey, though, would symbolize peace. You see, folks, as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, what the people wanted, they wanted a quick fix to all of their immediate problems. They wanted Rome out of there. They wanted Rome gone. They were sick and tired of being ruled by Rome. They were tired of the harsh Roman yoke. And so they're only thinking of the moment at hand. And you know, that's a lot like us too, isn't it? We want quick fixes. But what Jesus came to do was much bigger than that. As Jesus was riding into Jerusalem that day, his mind was not on setting up a temporal earthly peace that would never address the larger problem. Jesus was thinking of the larger need of man. That's why he had come. Galatians 4, 4 says, In the fullness of time God sent forth his Son, born of a virgin, under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Verse 11 says, when he entered Jerusalem, he went into the temple, he looked around, and then he left, and he went back to Bethany. It almost seems anticlimactic, doesn't it? But keep in mind, they've been journeying all day from Jericho. It's late. Everybody's dispersed quickly. They're eager, the people are eager for the next day. They're eager for tomorrow. 
because they're probably thinking tomorrow we rumble. Tomorrow we do battle against Rome and we'll be done with Rome once and for all. That's what they're thinking. Well, I want to quickly point out something that only Luke tells us about. If you'll find Luke chapter 19 and begin reading with me verses 41 and following. It says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. Imagine that, Jesus weeping. And he said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, the days will, will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus weeps over the city. As I mentioned earlier, when Jesus would have been riding in from Bethany and Bethpage, and then he would have come over the crest of the hill at the Mount of Olives, immediately right in front of his eyes would have been the city of Jerusalem. He would have gone down through the Kidron Valley and, and then up cliff or up the hill and into Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives is high, Jerusalem is high, and between the two is the Kidron Valley. You stand there at the Mount of Olives and you look at Jerusalem, it is quite a spectacular view to see. And when Jesus saw that, he wept. You know why he wept? because he loved them and he knew what was going to happen. You see, Jesus knew that they were going to reject him. He had come to save them, but they were going to reject him. And because of that, not only would they forfeit peace with God, and they would fail to gain eternal life and forgiveness of their sins, but they would end up one day destroying their city. You see, they would, keep, they would keep on insisting on Rome's overthrow to the point that they would finally force a battle with Rome. And that's what they did. In 70 AD, Rome responded. The Roman armies marched in under the leadership of Titus and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem and they destroyed the temple. Now apparently Titus had told his troops to use some degree of moderation but by now because of the way the people of Jerusalem had been holding off the Roman army. The Roman army was so angry that their attacks became all the more brutal. 
there was a massive loss of life. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us what happened. He says that they hemmed the people of Jerusalem in. They built a ramp over the city walls. They went in and they killed 600,000 Jews and they utterly demolished the city. It's reported by Josephus that the bloodshed was so great with 600,000 people being butchered that there were literally small streams of human blood that were running along the streets. That's what Jesus is talking about here in Luke 19. And he's weeping. It's, it's sad because it didn't have to be that way. Look at what he says. What if they would have recognized the time of God's visitation to them and they would, they would have come to faith in Jesus? If they would have understood that God was sending a Messiah whose kingdom was not of this world, they would have then been spiritually saved. And, and, and they could have then understood that they, they wouldn't have had to worry so much about Rome. God would deal with Rome one day in His own way, in His own time. They would have then been physically saved also instead of what happened in 70 A.D. with their physical destruction. Folks, that's why Jesus wept because it could have all been so different. God's ways didn't make sense to them. But in the larger picture, God's ways meant perfect sense. Let's bring this home to us. Let me close by saying that the destruction of Jerusalem is a perfect illustration of the final destruction of people who reject Christ. Again, what did Jesus say here? They had not recognized the time of their visitation. The word for time that is used here is the word kairos. It's a word for time that has to do with a special moment of opportunity. Jesus had moved in and among them and they did not recognize the significance of that time. Life was being offered to them, eternal life. But they rejected that. And so they, they would die eternally or spiritually, and they were also going to die physically because they were, they were going to be instigating this battle with Rome. What about us? What about you right now? Do you understand that this is a kairos moment for you? The Bible says that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. If we reject what Jesus has done for us, thinking that we have a better plan, whether it's good works or, or whatever, but if we think we have the better plan, we're going to die also. We're going to die physically one day, but we're also going to die spiritually, which is the second death. This is a kairos moment for you if you don't know Christ. 
Let me point out a couple of lessons. First lesson I see in this is that it's possible to be in the crowd following Jesus and yet not really belong to Him. Many in the crowd that first Palm Sunday were following Jesus, but they weren't really following Jesus. In other words, they weren't following Him on His terms. They were trying to follow Him on their terms. They were singing and shouting as a part of the crowd, but at the same time, they were rejecting His true mission. They missed why Jesus had come in the incarnation. They missed it all together. You know, we have a saying about some things, and that saying is, it's too important to miss. This is too important to miss. Well, this was too important to miss, but they missed it anyway. Don't be like them. Don't miss it. Don't be in the crowd who shouts Hosanna, but at the same time, not be a true follower of Jesus. A second lesson I see here, Jesus voluntarily laid down His life for you and me. He went to Jerusalem. He didn't shy away from, from the public notice of all this. He didn't shy away from dying a horrible death. No one took His life. He laid it down. This only happened because it was God's plan. Don't forget that. He laid down his own life. This was God's plan. Jesus had to die for sin if sin was to be dealt with. There was no other way. Let me say that again. There is no other way for sin to be dealt with. That's a third lesson I see here. You and I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And there is no other way to be made right with God other than through Jesus. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Have you come to Christ for the cleansing of your sin? Somebody says, you know, Pastor, that sounds exclusive. And it is. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus. But I also want you to see that it, it makes it very clear at the same time. There's only one way to Jesus, uh, to the Father, and that's through Jesus. God has made it so clear. Don't miss it. I want to invite you right now to pray with me, to bow your head wherever you are. If you'd close your eyes and bow your head in prayer with me. And let's pray together. Lord, I pray that right now there would be those listening to me who would come to Christ, that they would trust Him and Him alone for their salvation. Help them to cry out to you in a very simple way, saying, God, save me, forgive me. Jesus, cleanse my sin and come into my life and help me to live for you and to follow you as Lord. 
And Lord, help Christians right now to preach the gospel again and again to ourselves. Just simply reminding ourselves every single day where our hope is. Our hope is only in Jesus. Lord, remind us that you are the one in charge. You have all things under your control. And I pray that we would take great comfort in that. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for joining us this morning on this Palm Sunday. I want to remind you that at 645... On Thursday evening, we will be meeting together like this for our Maundy Thursday service. And I'll be leading you in a time of observing the Lord's Supper. So I want to ask you between now and then to go ahead and, and get the elements in order. For those in your household who are believers, uh, get bread or crackers and grape juice. And... Uh, I will have those elements here and on Thursday night after a time of looking at the scripture and having prayer time, we will observe the Lord's Supper together. I think it'll be a great time for many of our families as they celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And folks, I also want to remind you that during this time it's so important to give to our Annie Armstrong offering for North American Missions. Our North American Mission Board is on the front lines right now working across North America. We have church planners. We have uh, relief efforts going on. As you can only imagine with this virus going on, there's relief efforts going on all across this nation. And our North American Mission Board is very involved in that and they depend on funding uh, from us. And so in addition to supporting uh, your own church through your offerings. If you would also give a special offering to our Annie Armstrong Easter offering for North American Missions. And God bless you as you do so. Uh, take care. I hope you and your family stay safe.